This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 and Sunday mornings at 11 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. Right now, as the aging population is getting older, alcoholism or alcohol abuse or misuse is actually on the rise. And that's probably for one, out of loneliness or out of boredom. It's very accepted. Some people don't realize how much that's adding up over the week and that maybe they're having a little bit too much alcohol and that could have negative effects on their health and wellness. Welcome to the new and expanded 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to discuss cannabis, veterans, and seniors. Then we'll find out how food is love. We'll learn about the natural treatment of addictions. And lastly, we'll hear about what's right and wrong about the new Canadian food guidelines. But first, a little bit of business. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the HMed Connect app from the Android and Apple stores and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app. That's HMED Connect from your app store. Shaker Parmar has over 15 years of experience as an entrepreneur, lawyer, and design thinker. He's the CEO of Harvest Medicine and the Chief Strategy Officer at Vivo Cannabis. As CEO of HMED, he led the company to become one of the fastest-growing, highest-rated cannabis clinics in the country, attracting over 22,000 patients in under two years. As the CSO of Vivo Cannabis, Shaker plays an integral role in evaluating mergers and acquisitions opportunities and charting the strategic direction of the company. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on. So since I've gotten a dog, I've been walking more and connecting with my neighbors. And one person I met is actually a U.S. Army vet who has a service dog as he suffers from PTSD. And, you know, we're at the dog park and we get to talking and he explained to me how important cannabis has been to him in in helping him with his symptoms. And I thought it would be great to bring you on the show to discuss the connection between cannabis and that segment of the population, as well as other segments that might benefit. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, again, always a pleasure to be here. So the stories of my neighbor, of veterans who've been helped by cannabis, that's not unique, right? There's a, there's a lot of them out there. Not unique at all. In fact, it's one of the groups that, you know, really actually helped move the bar forward because of the great effect that the physicians were seeing with their patients who suffered from PTSD who were veterans. PTSD is a very complicated you know, condition and has manifests in a lot of different ways and manifests differently for different people. But 
one thing that's been amazing, uh, and, and you hear these stories all the time, is just how effective cannabis has been dealing with their symptoms in comparison to the traditional pharmacological approaches that existed. Yeah, and so with PTSD, I mean, I know you're not a doctor, and you don't play one on TV, but what are so, some of the manifestations? I mean, my friend, he suffers you know, from anxiety, and he has issues with sleeping. What else is there? Well, I mean, so I mean, those are sort of probably the, the biggest ones. Right. Um, you know, I mean, so flashbacks, nightmares, severe anxiety, uh, sort of uncontrollable thoughts about the actual events that caused the trauma. Right. Um, and it, it gets people to sort of relive that that memory again and again in their mind. And it's, you know, again, that the trauma seems like it's fresh for them every day. Um, and one of the things that I think cannabis has really been helpful for is helping them gain perspective on that trauma and helping them kind of almost create a buffer between the trauma and then slowly but surely help process that trauma in a way that they, you know actually helps them move past it. Yeah. Do you have any sense of how many veterans in Canada are actually using cannabis right now or medical? Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't have an exact number, but the last sort of count was about 7,500, but I would probably venture to guess we're close to the 10,000 mark now. Yeah. And actually, it's somewhat of a current phenomenon, even though medical cannabis has been available obviously longer than recreational cannabis, the ramp up for the vets has actually been within the last three to five years, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think, look, there, there was certainly the, the challenge in, in the Canadian system for, for veterans um, was that certainly at, at one point there probably was a little bit of abuse of the system by a very few number of people. But unfortunately, it's always like, you know, a small batch of apples kind of caused the problem for everybody. Right. And, and that's why the Canadian government kind of put in new regulations and restrictions as to how much was covered and the amount it was covered for. Right. So let, let's talk about that for a bit. So currently, the government compensates veterans for their cannabis, right? They get a, a rebate or they get a certain portion of it paid. Yeah, Is that yeah, right? Veterans, veterans Affairs covers the cost of up to three grams a day and at a cost of $8.50 per gram for veterans. Uh, so previously, there was no per day gram limit that veterans could access and there was no dollar amount that veterans could access. So unfortunately what happened is there's some bad players in the industry, both on the sort of the veteran side and then some on the, the clinics and vice producer side who were actually showing veterans different landing pages which had different prices for the same cannabis. And so it, because they knew it was covered. And, right. and so that was a real sort of abuse of the system and I'm really, really glad we've we've put an end to that. And you know now I think it's such a relatively fair policy because even if you require more than three grams a day, you can certainly uh, write to Veteran Affairs and work with your, your doctors to, to make sure that they give you the, the prescription allotment that you want. And certainly from you know, a clinical perspective at Harvest Medicine, we're big supporters of getting people the amount of cannabis they need to adequately deal with their treatment. So the government came down with three grams a day. Do you have any sense of how they came to that figure? Do you know? Well, I think it was somewhat of a consultative process. And, you know, they asked a bunch of doctors and, and looked around at what the average consumption was. I mean, I don't really know what happened behind the closed doors, but I would, I would hope that was some of the analysis that went into play. You know, what's been really great, Jamie, is that the industry has stepped up a little bit and said, hey, if the cannabis you as a veteran want is, let's say, $10 a gram, not eight fifty, right. we as the producer will cover that delta for you. Oh, really? So there's still, yeah, there's still no out-of-pocket expense. So a large number of the producers, um, you know, certainly uh, Beacon being one of them, said, yeah, if you want to order that $10 gram or $11 gram, don't worry. We're not going to ask you to pay out-of-pocket that $2.50. Uh, we will still cover that. 
So are there exceptions to the three gram rule in terms of compensation? Like if you had a doctor who said, no, this person really needs more than three, would the government compensate for the overage if the companies, you know, for whatever reason didn't or hadn't been addressed yet? Yes. So I mean, I think it's it's a bit of a process. And and unfortunately, this is one of those scenarios where due to the, again, the actions of a small number of people, now everybody who does need more has to jump through a lot more hoops Ah. to get there. But so, you know, you have to provide, you know, basically documentation saying, my doctor thinks I need more. The amount that I've been taking so far hasn't worked. Uh, Let us try it. And, you know, I think, I think Veterans Affairs is is open to that discussion. And certainly we've, we've helped many patients who needed more than that obtain that permission. And do you sense that the three gram limit was sort of like a cost saving measure in terms of the government? Because what they're saying is like, look, we know there's this many people who qualify as veterans for this. And we expect the numbers to be here, let's say in the coming years. And if we don't cap it, we're going to be spending a lot of money on this. Yeah, absolutely. I think mean, the financial consideration was a, was a huge part. I mean, to give you some sense of example of that, I mean, in a in kind of a six or seven year period, Veterans Affairs went from you know spending about half a million dollars a year on cannabis uh, compensation for veterans to spending over sixty million dollars a year right. on cannabis compensation, and then that's when they they put the cap on. And the following year after the cap, from the 63, it went back down to around the $50 million mark. So, you know, I think certainly the, to the cost benefit was, was there for them to think about it. But one of the things that the industry and veterans and everybody else still needs to do is sort of look at the comparative cost. I and mean, it's kind of easy to say, hey, we're spending X on cannabis, but there really hasn't been enough work or research done to say, because we're spending $50 million on, on cannabis, how much did we save? Another right. medication that we're not spending on. And, and yeah, what, what, what's the collateral cost that we're saving in somebody who perhaps isn't coping well, who gets into some criminal difficulty or social difficulties, you know, or becomes homeless? You know, all those issues that perhaps, you know, we're saving money in the long run. Who knows, right? Totally. And not just about the money, but also like the lives. People yeah, of are, course. Yeah, yeah. They are living a substantially better quality of life than their you know, previous medication allowed them to live. And that's one of the, I guess, the benefits of the, the cannabis plant is that, you know, we've talked about this before, is just how holistic it is and it's sort of treatment approach, right? That it is working on all these different levels in your body. So unlike pharmaceuticals, which are targeting, you know, one molecule to do one certain thing, there is a bit of a holistic approach here that really seems to help out in conditions like PTSD for, for sure. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. How are we as Canadians and our Canadian government dealing with our veterans with respect to cannabis that might be either different or better or like I know in the United States they're not where we're at yet, right? No, they're not. Even, they're not close at all. So I mean, the, the challenge in the United States, of course, is like a lot of the veterans programs are are run on a federal level, right? And um, and federally, cannabis still remains illegal. So I mean, they've they've come out and said, hey, you know, like if you are a veteran who's living in a state where cannabis is legal, right. uh, you won't be disqualified from the Veterans Affairs or, you know, programs, whatever else programs you're taking advantage of, because you're using medical cannabis. However, We're not Veterans pay Affairs for yeah. pharmacies aren't dispensing it, or Veterans Affairs doctors aren't writing scripts for it. So it's really, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, we'll accept it, but we're not really supportive of it is certainly the stance that you see in, in the United States, which is very unfortunate. Are you aware, like it seems to me from a cost perspective, they have such a big army and they're such a big nation. It would seem to me that if they went down that avenue, 
they're talking about a lot of money. Like if if Canada's at fifty million, you're you're, you're probably looking at close to a billion dollars in the United States, just given the, how many veterans they have, just because they're involved in so many wars. I don't know. I'm pontificating. Do you have any yeah. sense of it? <laughs> well, I think you and I are on the same page. I mean, again, yeah, the cost is probably high. But, you know, a couple of things are going to happen over the long run, especially when it becomes federally legal. The cost will come down because, the, you know, if we look at some of the, the states in the U.S. where it's been legal for a number of years, I mean, the, the supply-demand curve has really shifted, right? There is excess supply. And, and so the price will come down. And certainly if an entity like Veteran Affairs gets behind it, they can probably purchase it in a huge bulk volume discount. And so... You know, and again, the, the, so the economics are, are tenable, certainly, especially if you think about the actual quality of life. And, and as a country, you know, especially in the United States, they have an obligation to make sure these people live good quality of life after their service. Right. What about in, in other jurisdictions? Are you aware? Do you know what's going on with veterans in other countries? You know, it's, so it's, it's really the Canada and the, the U.S. Are, are sort of still some of the forefronts. I'm not fully aware of what's going on, for example, like the Netherlands um, or Israel for that. Yeah, matter. I was going to mention Israel, um, right? Big army. I don't know, unfortunately. Okay. Fair enough. What you do know, though, is there's another cohort of people where, where cannabis really benefits, and, that, and that's the seniors, right? Correct. I mean, so senior, the, the growth in the senior segment um, is the fastest growing segment in the industry. So when you look at the number of seniors using it year after year, we're seeing triple digit growth wow. um, in, in that, that segment. And again, it's because, you know, I'll give you a great example. Like and this happens at our clinic all the time. You know, we have somebody who comes in from a retirement home and they come in and they're, they're using a walker. You know, and six weeks later, they're off their walker. And absolutely everybody in the retirement home is like, what happened? Yeah, off, <laughs> you know, their, wa- off their walker, not their rocker, right? Yeah, exactly. Off <laughs> their walker, not Sorry, their I, I, to, I apologize. Um, Carry on. And, and so, you know, what happens is, like, they, they, all, their, all their friends at the retirement home will go, hey, what happened? And then they want to come in, and they want to try it, and they all get to get a lot of benefit out of it. And again, it's one of these holistic treatment methodologies, right? So it's not only helping with their arthritic pain, but it's actually making them feel better. It's helping with their depression. It's helping with their anxiety. It's and, and, and there's kind of this whole huge increase in quality of life. A lot of them start, you know, getting a good night's sleep for the first time in 20 years. A lot of them start enjoying food again after not enjoying food for the last 10, 15 years. So it's all these little things that build up and these people come back in six weeks or eight weeks and they've got big smiles on their face and they're telling us how they've told all their friends and eight or nine of their friends have come by since. Yeah, and quality of life is so important. Have you found now that with more with, with cannabis sort of in the news and on everybody's mind that the facilities are doing a better job of helping people that are there who are living there, let's say assisted life or even, you know, retirement homes and retirement facilities in sort of keeping the cannabis there and dispensing it because that's that was an issue with, with some locations right it, it, it still certainly remains a pretty big issue jamie and uh, um you know are they getting better yes are they good no so you know i think there's a lot of work that needs to be done i mean institutions like that tend to be more on the sort of conservative side and that's yeah. fine they should be um but you know what's what the feedback we hear is actually the, the real push for them to to look at this is actually coming from the resident children for the most part I would imagine, uh, yep. you know, and, and the residents are coming in and saying, hey, you know, have you tried this for my mom or my dad? Because I, this is what I'm hearing on the, on the news and the radio and I'm reading about it and it seems to be really effective. And so now they're kind of feeling the pressure to say, we, we got to have a strategy 
that that deals with this and certainly you know tools that didn't exist previously now allow it to make it easier so for example like our the the hmed connect app right so now right. instead of having veterans who have to travel to a clinic arrange travelers or seniors who have to travel to the clinic and and do those kind of things now they can do it from the comfort of their own retirement facility. And that makes it a lot easier. And certainly, the other thing that's happening is the caregivers in those facilities hadn't received adequate education in the past to say, what do I do with cannabis? How do I dispense it if somebody has a mobility issue and they can't open their bottle? Do I want to get involved in that process? And historically, the answer was no, I'm I'm scared. I don't know. Uh, And so what's happening now is that they've got, you know, good educational resources. There's certification level courses you can take as as an aide or a caregiver that explain what is cannabis as a medication? How do you dispense it? What are the things you need to watch out for? And in particular, with the, the senior population, here's a few things you've got to be really mindful of. So our medical director, Dr. Love, has started a, an online thing called Can You Educational Services, and there you can take these kind of courses and learn all about that. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today, but I always enjoy speaking about cannabis with you because you, you, you really know your stuff. So thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me on, Jamie. Always a pleasure. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to hear how food is love on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group seeks out the finest urban neighborhoods and designs projects to allow its residents to enjoy the benefits of both their property and the exceptional locations that they become a part of. The team surrounds itself with leading professionals and consultants and pushes them to conceive great places to live, to work, and to play. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. For more information, please visit thebenvenuto.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer and mother of three, my next guest is also the immensely popular cookbook reviewer for Tonic Magazine, my wife, Naomi. Hi, honey. Hi. So although you've written many, many great articles for the magazine, this discussion really isn't based on any article specifically, right? That's right. Today, we're going to discuss the connection between food and love, or put another way, how we connect with our food. So that connection, what is it? And is it a good thing? 
I think generally it's a good thing. And it's probably in my mind because of Valentine's Day and lots of discussion about love and food and chocolate and all that. But it's really more than that. It's more than Valentine's Day. And it is a good thing. Think about it. The connection that people have in their brains between food and love probably comes from parents feeding their children. That's how you take care of somebody is you feed them. That's one of the things that you do to take care of them. Um, When they're sick, you feed them. When they're little, you feed them. You know, it's part of somebody's well-being is, you know, the food, the nutrition they eat. So I think that's where it starts. I, I think our strongest memories, we're animals after all, are smells, right? Like people apparently can remember smells and, and it harkens back to times when they felt comfort or not. And obviously a lot of those smells that they're going to be smelling are food smells, you know, the smell of your mom baking. You know, I remember my mom making baked apples and what that smelled like or, or even spaghetti sauce, right? Everybody knows. Everybody has those memories. Oh, for sure. And, you know, when you're trying to sell your house, you bake apples or bake cookies because it makes it smell inviting. It makes people want to live there because it makes them feel at home. Right. It's also, there's a social aspect to it. So you eat with people. You know, you you grow up eating at the dinner table. It's a social uh, activity, eating. And so it's a way to get to know people. It's both, you spend time with people you know, so you, you eat with your family every day, hopefully, or right. regularly on special occasions. And think about business lunches. You know, if you're trying to seal a deal, you might go out for lunch with somebody as opposed to just meeting them in their office because you get to know them a different way over food. It's a chance to break down some barriers. Yeah. I mean, at mealtime, although there is formality at meals, it sort of melts away, right? Everybody's the same when you're sitting around the table. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's some of the, the positive emotional connections with food, but they aren't all positive, are they? No. Unfortunately, sometimes there's extremes Eating disorders is obviously very extreme. People feeling pressure to be thin, you know, eating unhealthily, getting obsessed about your weight and, you know, and and depriving yourself of food, which is one of life's greatest pleasures. People eating to make yourself feel better. So when you're sad and and that can be a good thing as long as it's not extreme. Well, no, it isn't though, right? I mean, I mean, emotional eating, emotional eating. And and you know, well, you, you know, because you've been with me for a long time that I, I do that, you know, it's, it's a way to make yourself feel better, but it's a fleeting thing. And I think emotionally people think about overeating, you know, like it was once considered a deadly sin, right? Like literally a sin, the sin of gluttony. And I think in in that, I don't think people perceive it the same way. I mean, obviously, and and I've discussed it with other guests. I mean, obviously overeating is not healthy, but, you know, happily we don't consider it a sin anymore. No, but even to the point of overeating and societal pressure, there's also pressure on people to be, you know, people who are overweight, that there's something wrong with them, the fat shaming and well, I think people, a lot of prejudice out there still. Yeah, I, I think when people see somebody that's overweight, they presume a lot of other things about them. In other words, that they're weak-willed or perhaps, you know, they can't get themselves together. They're disorganized or sloppy. And, and you know, that, obviously that is not necessarily the case with somebody that's overweight. But I think that's that's where our minds go. Okay, so... That's the negative, but let's talk about food and love and how that manifests with others, how we share our love for food. Sure, because really, I think generally when I think of food, it's about life, love, family, you know, like to eat, like to cook. It's one of the things I'm planning dinner when it's breakfast. I'm planning lunch, you know, I'm planning my snacks, something I think about all the time. So I'm a food obsessed. Maybe that's the good, I don't know whether I, which, which side I fall under. No, we're we're well matched in that regard. 
I think we spend an inordinate, perhaps an inordinate, for those looking at us, they, they, from the outside <laughs> looking in, they might say that we spend far too much time worrying about what we're going to eat and what we're going to make. But it is something that we, we love, right? And, and we love uh, sharing our food with others, right? And that's something you want to talk about as well. Exactly. So when I was thinking about things, you know, what recipes do I have that I use to share, you know, love. So then one basic one is there you've got your chicken soup. You, yep. you that's your chicken soup for the soul stuff. That's how you 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 make that for somebody who's sick to feel better. We make that on family occasions, you know, chicken soup and matzo balls or whatever right. is, you know, part of family traditions. And for that, I mean there are chicken soup recipes in many different cultures. I think the closest one to the recipe that I use is from Bonnie Stern and her chicken soup. But really, probably every cookbook I have that isn't a dessert book has a recipe for chicken soup. Well, the thing about chicken soup is, is, you know, it's not terribly complicated to make a half-decent soup. You know, it's it's, it's really just some mirepoix, some chicken, and a lot of thime. And by, yeah, by time, people, I mean, I mean T-I-M-E, not T-H-Y-M-E. Sorry, I'm a But people speaker. feel intimidated about it, that it's, you know, hard or messy, and it's really yeah. not hard at all. Okay. How else do you manifest food as love? I guess sharing recipes is an example of that, right? Yep. That's a great example. I'm always happy to share my recipes because I always change my recipes. And so, and then it's more trouble because I need to, I can't just copy the recipe from the cookbook. I have to take the recipe, redo it and add my tweaks and then share it because I would always, you know, I wouldn't be sneaky and leave out my key right. recipe. I trust, I want the recipe to be as good when somebody else makes it as when I make it. As long pretty as, much. <laughs> as long as you're properly cited. Nobody can take, nobody yeah. can say it's their recipe, right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So what about, you, you, we talk about chicken soup, but like when you're cooking for loved ones, it isn't just chicken soup, right? What, what else is there? Well, in our house, a big one is dessert. Yep. And when it's, uh, well, first of all, when it's somebody's birthday or an occasion, then the dessert is always the big thing. Everybody gets to pick the dessert they want on their birthday and or Valentine's Day, let's say. Yeah. And uh, and I will make it. I will I will go to great lengths to make it and make yes, sure that I make sure that it's done, you know, that they get to choose. That being said, there is a story about the chocolate tart. The chocolate tart story, yes. So you this make, makes you, me look bad. It does make you look bad. So I'm, I'm proud of you for bringing it up. So you make a phenomenal chocolate tart to the point where each of our three kids, I think, requested it every single birthday. So you were making you were you were making it pretty much every not every weekend, but you were making it a lot over the course of, let's say, six months to the point where you banned it. You actually banned the dessert from our house because you got sick of making it so much. And that did not go over well with everybody. Well, what I did, let me just correct you okay. slightly. First of all, it it's was my show. So you're not really correct. You can edify. But <laughs> it you was over more than six months. It was over some time, birthdays, New yeah. Year's, Valentine's Day. Everybody right. was requesting the chocolate tart. I got sick of making it. And yeah. what I said is I'm not making it for one year. I put a hold, a moratorium. Sorry, how's that different from what I said? You banned the, you banned for the, a time limited piece. Oh, oh, I for see. For a year. Well, a year. I said we got to try some other things, pick some other things, and then if you still want the chocolate tart after a year, I will make it. I want chocolate tart for my birthday. Do I get it? Or are we still it's in the year? Not till May. Right, I know. Are we still within the year, or do I? No, get it? of course not. And I've made it since then. All right, but I did. It did work. You know, I actually don't even want the chocolate tart. I want a crepe. <laughs> cake. I want a crepe cake. 
And let me just say, tell the listeners that the chocolate tart is Jamie Oliver's baked chocolate tart. Yes. And it is an excellent, excellent and not difficult chocolate tart with a crust and a kind of a creamy chocolate filling. It doesn't require a mix or anything. You just, you bake the crust, you make the filling and you bake the whole thing. And it's really, really good. So I still do like it. I just got sick of making it. I know. So I showed my love in other ways. Yes. By making other things. By banning a dessert for a year. That's how you show your love. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What about cooking sensuous food, let's say for date night, right? That's another manifestation of it, right? Sure. I'd say my favorite cookbook for those types of recipes is Taste and Technique, which came out a couple years ago. It's by a chef called Naomi Pomeroy, who mm -hmm. she was on Top Chef, Top Chef Masters or Top Chef, I can't remember, a few years ago. And this cookbook is everything that I've made is Excellent, excellent. Everything is a bit of trouble. So she's very specific about how to make it. But if you follow her recipe, it will be excellent. But and is it for beginners? Can everybody... I think so, yeah, because her instructions are very good. You just have to know, like I was thinking about date night and, well, strip loin roast with demi-glass cream or balsamic glazed short ribs with orange caraway glazed carrots or pan-seared wild mushrooms, Brussels sprouts with pickled uh, mustard seeds, very interesting things that go together. Everything is a little bit elevated and it's like something you'd get in a restaurant. It's not that hard. It just sometimes makes a few extra dishes or takes a few extra steps. Everything's been really good. And then for dessert, a couple years ago, we made the Bete Noir, which is a chocolate, these very rich little chocolate tarts, I guess, little chocolate cakes glazed with chocolate ganache. In, in individual cakes. Individual right? cakes. Yeah, they were delicious. They were delicious. Well, we also made, another time we made buckwheat crepes with caramelized apples and toffee sauce, which was also excellent, excellent. Basically, this cookbook has, it's just full of recipes that you would make if you wanted to impress somebody or want to make a special meal for somebody. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, that's all the time we have. Unfortunately, you'll come back next month. Of course. And we're going to talk about mindfulness in cooking next month, right? We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll hear all about the natural treatment of addictions on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Emily Lipinski graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto and is a member of the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors. While in the academic world, she became fascinated with the potential applications of naturopathic medicine in health and wellness. 
She strongly believes in addressing the root cause of medical issues using natural therapies, either alone or in conjunction with conventional Western medicine. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So you've come on the show a number of times, and we've talked about the kind of stuff that you would expect a naturopath to sort of be in on. But today we're going to go in a little bit different direction. Yes. And then we're going to discuss addictions, which is really interesting to me that there's a naturopathic angle to it. Yes. So let's start with drinking, because obviously, you know, unfortunately, it's still a lot of people abuse alcohol, right? They do. And a lot of people don't realize that Right now, as the aging population is getting older, alcoholism or alcohol abuse or misuse is actually on the rise. Right. And that's probably for one out of loneliness or out of boredom or a little bit of a little bit of both. And a lot of people think drinking is normal. It's very accepted. It's, you know, very normal in our culture to go home and maybe have a glass or two of wine or beer. Some people don't realize how much that's adding up over the week and that maybe they're having a little bit too much alcohol uh, and that could have negative effects on their health and wellness in multiple aspects. I think we've been socialized. I mean, as long as I can remember, I'm older than you are. It's always been okay to have a drink or two, right? Right. And now we've got a new problem. Now it's going to be okay to have a smoke or two or or an edible right? Exactly. You're, you're having a little bit to smoke, a little bit to drink, and then, right? Yeah, before yeah. you know it. Before you know it, we're rolling around. <laughs> okay. um, but things, men and women are different though, right? There's different tolerances and different ways that they, that they sort of approach alcohol. There is. In Canada, our government takes it as they are different. So the guidelines for men and women are different. In, in Canada, the guidelines for men is not more than 15 drinks a week. Right. And not more than 10 drinks a week for a woman. In the UK, it's different. It's 14 for both. Yeah, but they're big drinkers in the UK. Are they? <laughs> I just said that. <laughs> Either way, again, what a lot of people don't realize is a drink is not just a glass, a standard glass of wine. So a right. standard glass of wine is about, let's say if you go to the restaurant, you get a six ounce glass of wine, 175 right. mLs, I believe. Yep. That's just over two drinks. Oh, I did not appreciate that. Same with a can of beer is about two drinks or a bottle of beer is about 2.1 drinks. Right. That's like when you have like snack food and they say a portion is, you know, you think exactly. a, you think a portion is a half a bag of chips, exactly. but it isn't. So a lot of people actually think they're drinking less than they are. So if someone's going home, like a let's say a woman that's at home, maybe her husband has passed on. This is a very common scenario or she's alone, maybe separated or divorced. She gets home from work or in the evening she has a glass of wine, maybe two. That might be actually two or four drinks or even five drinks, not right. You know, she thinks she has two glasses of wine. It's not actually two drinks. It's probably four or five drinks. And if the quota, as a Canadian guidelines, is 10 drinks, you do that two nights in a row. That should be your quota for the whole week. Yeah, but it's a slippery slope, right? That's because right. Once you start having it after coming home from work, you know, most people work five days a week. Right. And then you find yourself doing a lot of drinking. Or if you're retired, some people drink a little bit earlier than they used to, maybe right. around four. I mean, we're talking... Yeah, maybe certain birthdays, holidays, occasions, people drink more. It, it, it definitely adds up. So let's talk about how alcohol and somebody who's perhaps having too much, how it's going to impact their health. Yeah, so it's multiple areas of the health that it can impact. 
impact. First, mood. Alcohol, although people take it to feel a little bit better. It's in a the depressant. Moment, it is a depressant. Yep. So, and a lot of people realize that once they're aware of it, okay, in the moment it makes them feel better, but the next morning, a lot of people say, okay, if I actually tune in, I am a little bit more anxious or I feel a little bit lower after having a little bit too much to drink or even, right. again, those two or three glasses of wine, which is actually, you know, maybe five or seven drinks, right? right yeah. So it can make someone more depressed. Long-term heavy drinking also increases the risk of Alzheimer's disease and memory deficits. Hmm. It impacts the heart in that drinking can increase blood pressure. Binge drinking or having too many drinks in one sitting can cause abnormal heartbeats. Dehydration. That's right. Drinking also weakens the heart because it weakens blood vessels. It can also lead to weight gain and change in hormonal function. Well, it definitely goes to weight gain because there's all kinds of calories in alcohol. Absolutely. Yes. And wine is a bad one. And a lot of people want to eat a little bit when they have something to drink, right? Right. And we've, we've talked about cutting out sugar, but if you're having wine, there's a fair bit of sugar and a lot of, a lot of alcohols. There is. And I find, interestingly, as I get older, it affects my sleep patterns as it well. It does. Completely. And some people, again, think, oh, a glass of wine or a beer or, or a shot of brandy, let's say, will help me sleep. But It may help you get to sleep, that's but, right. but it doesn't help you stay asleep. That's correct. Yeah. And then, of course, which a lot of people do think of with alcohol, it's very hard on the liver. And so, you know, a lot of people associate heavy drinking to liver disease, which is true. But even before liver disease takes place, it is still a tax on the liver because the liver has to metabolize all that alcohol that you're drinking. So from a Chinese or an Eastern medicine perspective, even a few drinks every night can be difficult on your detoxification system. Yeah, that makes sense. So a lot of people now may be inclined to switch over or include... Mm -hmm. Uh, cannabis yes. as their stimulant of choice. That's right. What are your thoughts on that? I think, you know, again, just like a little bit of alcohol can be beneficial. And for, you know, the studies we're seeing, there is applications where cannabis can be beneficial. Right. Before you go on. Yeah. I don't want to talk about medical cannabis in the context of this yes. conversation because people, if you've got a prescription for medical cannabis, you're taking it for a reason. Let's yes. let's just sort of park them on the side. I'm talking about recreational cannabis right. right now. So I think we still have the same issues as alcohol, really, in terms of, and I get asked this in my practice all the time, well, do I actually have a problem? One, it's adding up how many true drinks you're having a week. Right. Two, is if you look forward on a daily basis or, or a few days a week to having a drink or you know, marijuana, yeah. medical or not medical. Yeah, they prefer cannabis, not marijuana, but go Cannabis. On. Yeah. If you feel like you can't get through the day or you can't fall asleep with that substance, again, alcohol or cannabis. Yep. If you don't go and do things, if you notice your life is changing a little bit because you feel, oh, you know what? I actually had too much to drink or I took too much cannabis and I actually can't meet with my friends. Can't get off the couch, can't drive. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Right. When you notice it start interfering with your life. But before that often comes, people will say, oh, you know what I do? I go to work every day and I can't wait to get home and have a drink. That's your first thought that I might have a little bit of a problem, even though I don't want to admit right. it, there might be something there. Or I can't go to sleep at night until I have my beer or wine. Again, that's that could be an issue. Right. And I don't think people 
think of cannabis as being the evil that alcohol is in terms of like, you know, alcohol is to alcoholism. Cannabis is to what? You know, like, can you get addicted to cannabis? And I think you can. I just don't think we see it as much because it's not as prevalent. That's right. But it will probably as, you know, in Canada, as things progress here, we will be seeing more in the future of what happens with cannabis and the side effects that can take place. I Absolutely. I have seen cannabis addiction in practice. It is a true thing. What about the side effects or the the spin-off effects of, of regular cannabis use? Are there any that you're aware of in terms of health? Anxiety and depression is one, and which is interesting because cannabis is often used for anxiety and depression. It well, can medically diagnosed with CBD that can That's help right. one way. But yes, I know people do. They get moody, as it were. Yes. Right. Yep. Like psychosis, even in the short term, which can happen. You know, people start having a little bit of hallucinations when they have cannabis, and sometimes that can really rock people. Even if it just happens happens once. And again, that can cause anxiety. Well, I I can tell you, I think people who have not tried edibles might be shocked at some of the reactions they have because it's a very different experience than if you're going to smoke cannabis or or take it in uh, in other ways. Yes. Weight gain with cannabis is... The munchies are real. It's true. It's true. And a lot of people don't think about that, right? Cannabis also, why edibles are made is cannabis is fat soluble. So that's also in the research, and I, hadn't, I haven't looked at this in a little while, but individuals who did use cannabis at a certain period, and they did look at heavy users of cannabis, it was found that in around the neurons, in something called the myelin sheath, which protects your yep. neurons, and it's a fatty substance, there was residue of cannabis in there. Hmm. So whereas the alcohol doesn't stay in your system, it's not stored anywhere per se, but the fact that cannabis may be stored or byproducts of cannabis may be stored is very fascinating. Fascinating too, and it will is that beneficial or not? Okay, so we've talked about sort of the big two that that people you know may decide to ingest. We have yes. one minute left. Let's talk about natural remedies and whether they exist to help with people if they find that they're sort of offside and they're they're smoking too much or they're drinking too much. Yeah. So from again a neuroscience point, there's an, there's a part in the brain that's called the dopaminergic loop. It's it's that's what people are triggering when they're drinking or smoking or gambling or sex addictions. Mm-hmm. It has to do with this dopamine part. So when we look at addiction from a medical standpoint or a natural standpoint, we have to look at how can we get into that dope, how can we naturally boost that dopamine to reduce the need for these other substances that have become addictive. Exercise, hands down, is one of the best things that you can do. But for exercise to truly have an impact in mitigating addictions or alcohol abuse, you need to be doing it frequently. That's at least three to four times a week. And you have to get sweating. You have to have the endorphins being released. So it has to be a really good exercise or or high-speed walk. It can't be just moseying around the neighborhood. Right. And then, you know, the, the funny thing is, though, you find yourself getting addicted to the exercise exercise. And, right. and that actually happens too. It right? does. It does. There's other natural substances, including a lot of amino acids actually have been really beneficial in reducing alcohol use and abuse. Also B12 and the B vitamins. There's something, one of the most famous addictions researchers, Canadian, his mm-hmm. name was Dr. Abraham Hoffer. He mm-hmm. was a psychiatrist and he wrote something called the vitamin cure. And that is looking at how beneficial certain vitamins, specifically the B vitamins, are in reducing cravings and reducing alcoholism in someone that's addicted. Well, that's fascinating. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But you'll come back next month, right? I will, yes. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. 
At Caregiver Services Limited, we specialize in 12 to 24 hour private care for seniors in private homes, hospitals, or facilities. We provide the highest level of customized service for families looking for a caregiver or personal support worker. To ensure the highest quality of care and support, we limit the number of clients we service. Whether you're looking for general live-in care or have more significant needs related to mobility issues, dementia, or palliative care, finding someone who's a great fit is most important. At Caregiver Services Limited, our highly experienced staff specialize in meeting the unique needs of 12 to 24-hour care. For more information, please visit caregiverservices.ca. Let our family help care for yours. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Shauna Linzen, is a registered dietitian with over 25 years of experience. She's worked as a clinical dietitian at Sunnybrook Health Science Centre in nephrology and neurosurgery for 12 years. Since leaving the clinical setting, she's been working in the community as a consulting dietitian. She sees private clients at the Davisville Family Practice, WellPoint Health Centre, and Akira MD, a doctor in your pocket. Over the years, she's been a food industry consultant and a media spokesperson for a variety of companies. And since 2013, she's worked as a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network. Welcome to The Tonic. Thank you for having me, Jamie. When I think of the Canada Food Guidelines, I think of like public school and health class and, you know, the food circles all sort of dissected and the pyramids of how many you should have of the different food groups. But there's much more to it, right? There is, absolutely. And the new Canada's Food Guide just came out last week, right. a few weeks ago. And it hasn't been revised since 1992. Wow. And Neither have I. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't been revised since then either. <laughs> and lots of people liked to slam the Food Guide and say right. they didn't like how it was divided into different sections. Right. And the government has listened to the feedback and the approach that they took with this new food guide is as follows. They did not consult with industry like they did in the last one. They haven't put predetermined portions right on to the food guide. Right. So what they did was they took a plate. And I've been actually teaching this in my practice for over 10 years. I call it the plate theory. Okay. So half of the plate is divided into different color vegetables. It's actually quite stunning. If I'm sure most people have seen a, a copy of it now. So half of the plate is divided into different color fruits, vegetables, quarter of the plate, they call it the protein group. Right. And that has all foods protein. So for instance, it does have the meat, the eggs, they have yogurt on it. It has beans and legumes and nuts. And they're trying to emphasize more plant-based proteins. Right. And then the other quarter of the plate are whole grains. Now, with the whole grains, they decided to make the plate very whole grains. Like you see dark whole grain pasta, you see the pseudo grains like quinoa and 
that just it represents quarter of the plate. Right, as opposed to processed grains like breads and pies and cakes. Absolutely, cetera, right? Absolutely. So, in terms of all of the categories, they want us to emphasize whole foods as opposed to processed foods or ultra processed foods. What's the difference between processed and ultra processed? So, processed means to start off with whole foods. Whole foods means that you can recognize the food. Right. So, for instance, you put a grape in front of you. That's a whole food. You can say you can recognize that that is a grape. Minimally processed food would be something like canned tuna. So it doesn't look like a fish, but you open the can and you see the protein there. So that's minimally processed. It just has a few ingredients. Lastly, we have the ultra processed foods. So that's something that you can't recognize as a whole food. So a good example of that is like a fruity cereal. Right. And. Who knows? Does that come from wheat? Does that come from corn? Does that come from rye? We don't know where that comes from. So that's an ultra-processed foods. So there's actually a classification system called Nova, and it's a worldwide classification system where if you look it up, you can see what's a whole food, what's a minimally processed food, and what's an ultra-processed food. What other material changes have they made to the guide from the old guide? So they're emphasizing whole foods. What what else is different from the old guide? So they've taken away a few categories. So they've actually taken away the meat category, and it was called meats and alternatives in the past, as well as the milk and alternatives. And they've combined that into a protein group. And people are asking me on my Facebook page and my Instagram, people are asking questions like, how do you feel that the dairy group was taken out, for instance? Well, the dairy group is still in there, but what they're saying is that you can actually get the nutrients from different foods if you follow this plate theory. For instance, if you have bok choy, if you have almonds, if you have salmon with the bones, you're getting calcium. So you don't need to get a specific food per se to get nutrients. You can get a variety of different foods. Any diet will fit into this, like a vegetarian diet, a vegan diet, any sort of diet that isn't super fad-like will fit into the food guide. And it's an overall guide and you tailor make it according to your needs. If you're tailoring it to yourself, what's the point? What is the purpose of the food guide if at the end of the day you're picking and choosing what you're going to eat? It's important to have a guide. It's not one size fits all. It's just a guide. So the importance is for people to make policies. For instance, daycare menus, hospital menus, school menus. We need a guide as Canadians to follow. So it's a overall government guide that is unbiased, that is, I think, easier to follow than the last one. So instead of saying, you know, you have to have a specific thing like dairy, that's not really it. Dairy may provide certain nutrients, and as long as you can get those nutrients from other sources, it doesn't really matter. The Absolutely. Okay. It, you can tailor, make it. It's almost like a dietitian colleague of mine by the name of Steph Palmieri, she tweeted something that was, I thought was a great analogy. It's like a pair of pants. If you take a pair of pants, you might want straight legs. Someone might want a bell leg. Someone yeah. might want a capri. It's not one size fits all. You have to tailor it according to your likes, beliefs, allergies, cultural background. And what I normally say is, if you want to get the pants tailored, go to a tailor. So if you want to learn more about yourself as an individual, 
go to a registered dietitian, figure it out and get the professional to custom tailor for you. Okay. So I can hear from the sound in your voice, you're in favor of this new food guide, right? I am. I am. I think it's a great step. It's a big leap in the right direction. As I said, the the main negative comments about the last food guide was it's very segmented into the different groups. The portion sizes are difficult to follow, right? Right. I mean, does anybody really portion according to the food guide, though? People try. I think people try to do it. And for instance, if you're out and you think, well, how many servings should I have of A, B, and C? It's it's difficult to do that. And that's more of a dieting approach, right. not a lifestyle, lifestyle approach. Right. And for 26 years, as long as I've been practicing, I've had on my page, diets don't work, lifestyle right. changes do. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's a bit of a mugs game, though, if you're going to a restaurant expecting any kind of portioning, right? Restaurants will decide what, what they're putting on their plate based on their food costs. And, uh-huh. and, you know, you can get a whole individual pizza at a place for X dollars doesn't mean you should be eating a whole pizza. And that's, and, 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 you know, for example, although I will certainly eat the whole pizza, but it has nothing, it has no connection with a food guide. There's no restaurants that are are actually performing the food guide portion. Yeah. And that's customer driven. Can you imagine going to a restaurant and not getting enough food? People will complain. Yes. There's a couple of restaurants (laughs) now that are charging a lot of money. And for I've smaller heard portions. For, for yeah. portions such that they had to go out and eat after. It's for a different show. Yeah, but, but the good news is with the food guide, now you can think visually, what right. should my plate look like? Right. And so, okay, if I'm doing a, a pasta meal, I'm going to add some broccoli in there and a green salad with a bunch of vegetables. So it actually practically makes you think while you're at the restaurant or if you're on a cruise ship going to a buffet. Right. So it's favorable in terms of being in an environment to help you choose properly. What are some of the criticisms? I'm not necessarily suggesting they're your criticisms, but what have you heard that people aren't so thrilled about the new food guide? Interestingly enough, the first criticism that I saw was the portion sizes, like how much should we eat? But there's actually another document. It's a um, a 52 or 62 page document that you can look up on the government, right. but for health professionals. And right. it's a document that actually explains more of the food guide. So in terms of the underneath scientific information, if you want more information, just go there. The other criticism would be, what about the the cultural aspect of the food guide? So for instance, eggplant might not be on the vegetables, but if you eat eggplant, eat the eggplant. This is just a guide. So one of the criticisms is the cultural aspect. Another criticism is the whole grain category has just dark whole grain foods. The old guide said choose at least 50% of your servings, your whole grain servings as whole. Most people don't eat that way. So for instance, Japanese Chinese cuisine has white rice. So that's a criticism. But that doesn't bother me because I think that the kind of like baseline that you look at should be whole grain. And if you don't eat that way, that's okay. It's just a guideline. Is there anything that you personally disagree with on the food guide or perhaps think that it hasn't gone far enough? Actually, no. When we haven't mentioned beverages, when we talk about beverages, we've put the main beverage as water or they've put the main beverage as water. I think that that's a great, that really made me happy, actually, because we're not saying um, processed vegetable juice, fruit juice, that type of thing. So, no, I don't personally think I would change anything. If there was one thing I would change, I would maybe put a little bit of white rice 
or white pasta into the grains. That's just a little bit. So I would maybe do 80% whole grains, 20% white grains. That's the one thing I would do. What, ab- what about uh, the idea that perhaps eating with whole grains and, and whole foods requires more time? It's more time... It requires more of a commitment and not everybody has the time to, to cook for themselves and, and create healthy meals because it's time consuming. That's where the tips and tricks come in. So if white rice takes 20 minutes to cook right. and brown rice takes 40 minutes, cook up a major batch of brown rice and freeze it in individual servings, like a cup of rice put into a bagging into the freezer. So that's where the tips and tricks come in with meal prep, meal planning and being on top of it. That makes a lot of sense. So if people had questions, they might want to contact somebody like you, right? Exactly. So how would they reach out to you if they wanted to find out some tricks or tips about how to deal with the food guide? So uh, my name is Shauna Lindzen, registered dietitian. I'm on Instagram as Shauna Lynn RD. I have a website, shaunalindzen.com. I do cooking demos in Toronto and I help people turn the food guide or turn cooking into an easy family-centered meal. And actually, that's one more thing I want to mention. The food guide isn't only the guide on how to eat, it's what to eat, where to eat it, who to eat it with, and it really encompasses everything. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomeradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For articles written by Naomi Bussin and Emily Lipinski, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers and 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we discuss Toronto real estate, mindfulness in your ego, learning how to live your life, and more medical cannabis. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.